Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. Standalone message today. We're out of a series. We're just kind of hanging out. So I want to hang out in the gospels. Is that all right with everybody? Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20 says this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? He took one of those Instagram polls, you know, with the sliders. Who do people say that the son of man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. I, I at least just thank God that in this moment, they didn't say anything else. They had very, very spiritual answers to who Jesus was. <clears throat> but you, now watch the question, but you, every shout, but you, every shout, but me. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? How many of you would start to get a little nervous in that question? Jesus looking at you straight in the eyes. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders, orders to not tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Today, I wanna speak to you from this subject. Write this down if you're taking notes today, your phone, iPad, paper, whatever you're writing on. I spy. I spy. Come on, say it after me. I spy. As we look at this moment between Jesus and his disciples and what we can learn from it today, Father, we we love you, we worship you, we praise you today. We give you this time and this space. Speak to us now. Move me out of the way. We need your words, not my words. It's your word that brings us life and hope. It's your word that frees us. It's your word that sheds light into the dark areas of our soul and our heart and our mind. So we love you today. We worship you. We praise you. In Jesus' mighty name. Come on, and the church shouted. Amen. amen, amen, and amen. Show of hands, where are my road trip people at? Road trip people, put them up. How many of you are road tripping this year? You're gonna get in the car, you're gonna pack it up, you're gonna go for it. All right, lots of you. Um, we love road trips. Typically our vacation is road trips. We love driving to not our mountains, but other people's mountains. Um, <laughs> our mountains are fantastic, but like we love Montana and we like going to Idaho and parts of Wyoming. We love going to the mountains of Colorado. And how many of you know that there's something that takes place on every single road trip and it's car games, it's road trip games, right? And so it's a license plate game. How many of you played that before? You try to find all the states. Um, You make up weird things with like the numbers and the letters. You try to spell words. There's all kinds of license plate games. And, and, um, but one of the things that if you are in our family that we eventually play, maybe you've played this before, is the game I Spy. I spy with my little eye something purple. I spy with my little eye something, and then the person goes on to detail out what it is that they're spying with their Little eye. How many of you played this game before? Show of hands, okay? Hopefully everybody's hand goes up because then I know you're lying to me. So um, I spy with my little eye. But here's the thing. Here's what frustrates me about playing with my children. Every 
every time they I spy something, I don't trust that they're getting the details right. <clears throat> How many have played the game with somebody like that before? They're a little vague on the details. They're like, I spy with my little eye something, you know, it's kind of lavender. Uh, it's got four eyes. Like they're saying weird stuff. They're not detailing it right. They're kind of being vague or they just simply don't know how to describe it because they don't fully understand what it is that they are looking at. And it's in this moment of scripture, I believe the same thing is happening. And I think this is what happens to many of us when it comes to Jesus. Who are you, Jesus? Are you who that you say that you are? Where are you at right now? Are you for me or against me? Do you love me? These are valid questions when it comes to Jesus. Only one can't lose at this game. Because who we see Jesus as and confess him to be has eternal ramifications upon our life. Oh, come on, it's the church with me today. Peter would engage at this moment with the same passion and forwardness as in many other moments that we see him engaging in scripture. But this was no ordinary moment. At this moment, Peter would profess a truth that would change everything. This would be the moment that Peter would spy with his little eye and acknowledge the awaited for Messiah. And he would declare it. He would say it with his mouth. Now, according to the writing of Josephus in Antiquities, Caesarea Philippi lay at the foot of Mount Lebanon near the sources of the Jordan in the territory of Dan and at the northeast extremity of Palestine. This particular region was strongly identified as a Gentile area as well as a Mecca for idol worship. Baal was the deity worshiped there in those times. The Greeks later substituted him with their god, Pan. Not Peter Pan, Pan. And the town took the name Panaeus, the shrine itself being called Panion. There'd be a lot of history of wars and idol worship. It was, it was wrought with this type of behavior. And this little road trip retreat with his disciples led to this place that was significant for idol worship. And I want us to see this today because Jesus, with all of this around, presumably the place that they were standing was a, was a, a significant place for idol worship, ideologies all the way around that were infiltrating the city and people's thoughts and minds It's who they worshiped. And it would be in this spot surrounded by all of this stuff in the culture around them Jesus would say, who do you say that I am? There's who, who do they say that I am, but who do you say that I am? And Peter would make this proclamation that actually conflicted with the surrounding culture's opinion of him. Isn't it like that today? What we say and believe about Jesus is at great odds with the prevailing culture and ideology swirling about us. So instead of proclaiming who he is with great surety and confidence, we try to make him bow to everything else around us. Willem Vistert Hooft, the first general secretary of the World Council of Churches, was once asked what he thought would be the greatest peril facing the church in the near future. This is a quote from the message of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven. And he replied with prophetic insight. Listen to his statement. He says, syncretism. It is far more dangerous challenge to the Christian church than atheism is ever likely to be. 
And what is syncretism? It's the amalgamation of multiple beliefs. It's how we create a Frankenstein Jesus. It's how we make Jesus semi-Buddhist and semi-crystals and semi-enlightenment and semi-secularism. He's got this appendage that's kind of, that has like weird belief systems and he's got this appendage over here that's political and he has this appendage over here that's about money. Y'all see what I'm talking about? The idols of our time, if we're not careful, we don't know who Jesus is, we will start gluing them to him. Who do you say that I am? Is it all right if we touch on some stuff today? And so this is probably one of the most important and significant moments in the disciples' journey with Jesus, especially for Peter. Why? How do we know it's important? Well, it's recorded here in Matthew. It's recorded in Mark chapter 8, 27 through to 29. And it's recorded in Luke 9, 18 through to 20. Now, this wouldn't be the only moment that we would see significant considerations as to the identity power and scope of Jesus. For instance, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 27, the disciples would make inquiry as to Jesus' authority in relation to his ability to calm the storm. Y'all remember that part? Where he told the storm, shut up. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 2, John in prison would question who Jesus was as he was hearing reports about all that Jesus was doing. John would ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? In Matthew chapter 12, verse 33, upon healing a blind man and demon-possessed man, the crowds would ask, could this be the son of David? A reference that often often accompanied the identity of Jesus. These and many other moments seem to be moments of expression that come from a heightened, here it is, emotional place. The commotion surrounding a miracle or act of Jesus' ministry or a crowd following Jesus, speculating as to who he was. You ever been there before? You ever, you ever been in a city, or maybe in Park City during, uh, uh, during the event, I can't remember what the event's called, in the wintertime? Sundance. Sundance. All the stars are around. All the who's who, the A-listers. Have you ever been one of those people that follows them around trying to figure out, is that Brad Pitt? <laughs> right? And we're speculating. We're trying to come up with things. Is that him? He kinda, it kind of looks like him. He kind of sounds like him. He's sitting in the dark corner in the side of a restaurant. And you're, you're spinning your wheels going, is that him? Is that really him? That's what accompanied Jesus. He would go from town to town, moment to moment, miracle to miracle. And people would be following him, trying to figure out, is this the one who is to come? I don't know. It kind of looks like him. And he's saying some things that kind of sound like what we've been told is going to happen. And he kind of resembles the, the prophetic words that we've received over history. Is it him? Is it not him? And the funny thing is, is we still do that today with him. Who do you Say that I am. I spy with my little eye, Jesus. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 33, the disciples' assessment of Jesus was due to the distress they were experiencing. You ever identified Jesus because you needed him? So he was the Jesus of your distress. However, at this moment, on this walk, Jesus would pose a very pointed question. And Peter would, with significant consideration, answer Jesus' question. Peter's answer came from a decided upon declaration. Not from a place of confusion or distress or otherwise emotional chaos. 
His declaration of Jesus' person and position was a declaration, come on somebody, of his faith. It was a statement of fact concerning Jesus and worship unto him. I love this thought from the Holman New Testament commentary. It says this, in these verses, Jesus asked a second more pointed question, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Notice that Jesus did not ask who the disciples thought he was or who they believed he was, but who they said he was. Jesus wanted to know what they were ready to confess verbally about his identity. This was the point at which they needed to step across the line and commit to the reality of him as Christ or stay behind it with the rest of the blind spectators. Now, I don't know where you're at in your romantic relationships in this room. I know we've got some singles in here. We've got people maybe dating. We've got people trying to figure out how to date. We've got married people. We've got a lot of different relational statuses in here. So I'm going to just talk about my personal experience. And I remember the trepidation that was inside of me when I decided it was time to step over the line and say, I love you. Woo! Some of you remember that? Some of you remember saying it and they were like, oh, shouldn't have said it. (laughs) You're like, come back. Right? But I I remember saying, I love you to Erica. I remember the, I can't tell you the exact moment because it wasn't like the grand, I think it was like we were 12. Um, That's a true story. Um, But we were young, so I don't remember the exact moment that I said it, but I remember the feeling that was inside of me when I was committing and later on, like as as I got older to actually say it, to step over the line and say that I love you. Because how many of you agree with me? Those are not weak words. They're not shallow words. That's a big, that's a big statement. And that's where some of us are with Jesus is that we don't know if we're yet willing to step over the line and verbally commit to assessing who he is in your life and my life. Am I talking to anybody in church today? And so we've got to get this thing talked about. It wasn't from a place of confusion or distress or a statement of fact. As we head into the thick of summer around here, I think it's vital to our life and faith's overall health and strength to deal with this issue. See, the summer tends to be when we are traveling, moving around, and if we're honest, forgetting about the declarations we've made about Jesus this year. Isn't that interesting how we come to summertime, we have a tendency to forget all the work we've done? Like we sang today, I've come too far to forget. I've come too far to give up. Come on, you've come too far since the beginning of the year as we've, as we've engaged in spiritual formation and working through some of the things deep inside of us. Can I just encourage us to You've come too far to give up. We gotta step over the line. Jesus, this is who I believe you to be. So many people break tension during the summer because it's a time of pause and rest and relaxation, which is good. However, during moments like this, we need to reaffirm once again and declare who Jesus is in our lives. Like Peter, we need to make a declaration from a place of consideration, affirming who we know him to be in your life and in my life. Come on, is anybody thankful for Jesus today? 
Writer and author Graham Truscott put it this way, when God's people begin to praise and worship him using the biblical methods he gives, the power of his presence comes among his people in an even greater measure. I wanna say this, write this down if you're taking notes today. A declaration is often one of our worship's most prominent and robust measures. A declaration. Come on, how many of you know that a Raiders fan, once they tell people there's no coming back from that? (laughs) How many of you know that there's declarations that we make that you can't come back from? Come on, have you ever ever been in a moment where you said something before to somebody and you know I can't come back from that? I, I said it, it came out of my mouth. Whether it's positive or negative, I said it and I can't come back from, I just want to encourage some of us today, church, hear hear me when I say this. Some of us need to even today make the verbal declaration that I am not coming back from my belief, my acquisition, my understanding of who Jesus is. In other words, worship is a catalyst for a greater depth of relationship with Jesus. And here's the genuine truth that I want us to hear today. Summer is not a time to take a vacation from our faith. It's amazing how many vacations we take from our faith. I'll tell you the vacation. Summer, the 4th of July weekend, New Year's. We just did our Christmas services in the New Year's. It's amazing how many people take a vacation from what they believe so they can engage in what Jesus saved them from. That's what happens in the summertime. And that's what happens when we fundamentally believe that our faith is something that we put on and take off. Am I talking to anybody in church today? And so we got we to deal with this issue. This is what Jesus said, for where your treasure is, their heart, your, your heart will be there also. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. In Proverbs 4, 23, we read, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. In other words, what you align your heart with will dictate the flow and direction of your life. What's at the center of your life, what your your life revolves around. W.A. Elwell, co-writer of the Tyndale Bible Dictionary, writes this, true worship required a people to connect to God, the spirit in their spirit, as well as a people who knew the truth. New Testament worship must be in spirit and in truth. Human beings possess a human spirit, the nature of which corresponds to God's nature, which is spirit. Therefore, people can have fellowship with God and worship God in the same sphere that God exists in. C.S. Lewis said it like this, it is in the process of being worshiped that God communicates his presence to men. Worship's powerful. And I'm not just talking about the worship that we do corporately here. This is powerful too. We need that in our life. We're not to forsake that in our life. But some of us have to realize that if we have a firm foundation in Christ, if we believe who he says that he is, if we believe what we read about him in this Bible, every single day will be worship unto him. And worship isn't just singing songs either. Y'all with me today? Worship, as we're going to talk about in a moment, is what Peter did. Worship is declarative in nature. Worship is about declaring certain things, saying certain things, and and engaging in certain behaviors. Is it all right if I'm excited this morning? Because if we can get this, 
It'll fundamentally change how we walk out the journey of faith that we're in. My desire as your pastor today is to help every single one of us, including myself, move through the moments of summertime that can get kind of plain and dry for us as we're doing everything else but declaring who he is. So today, whether you're Christian or never stepped foot into a church before, we must all be reminded that there is a God in heaven that desires us, longs for us to communicate our admiration and honor not because we must, but because we do so understanding what he has done in each of our lives. So it's this confession, Peter's confession, that I want to focus on today. In Peter's answer, we get this amazing picture of what it means to place Jesus at the center of our lives. And by doing this, we are saying that Jesus is the focus. We're saying that he's the center, he's the focal point, he's the hub. He's the core of our worship and adoration. Now, I know it's warm in here today. We're trying to figure that out. But y'all just need to lean forward and sit up. And if you're sweating next to somebody, praise the Lord. (laughs) So I want to look at three truths today um, that we need to grab a hold of concerning this issue of declaration and proclamation, worship unto Jesus. Does that sound good? All right, need your help. Every shout number one. Number one, here's the first thing. Uh, The alliteration is thick today. I just had fun with this message. Proximity is produced by proclamation. Let's go. All the P's. All the P's today. (laughs) Proximity is produced by proclamation. Second Chronicles chapter five, verses 11 through 14. Listen to this. Now all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves regardless of their divisions. When the priests came out of the holy place, the Levitical singers dressed in fine linen and carrying cymbals and harps and lyres were standing east of the altar, and with them were 120 priests blowing trumpets. So just so you know, if you ever have volume issues in here, imagine 120 trumpets. (laughs) The Levitical singers were descendants of Asphah, Haman, and Jedithon, and their sons and relatives. The trumpeters and singers joined together to praise and to thank the Lord with one voice. They raised their voices accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and musical instruments in praise to the Lord. This is where we get the actual design of worship. And this is what they would sing, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. The temple, the Lord's temple, at that moment, watch this, was filled with a cloud And because of the cloud, the priests were not able to continue ministering for the glory of the Lord filled God's temple. Man, what happened? Proximity took place because of the proclamation of their mouths. God showed up. Church, hear this today. There's something about God showing up where he is invited. And we invite God with our proclamation. I pray we never become a stoic, silent church that sits back and thinks that worship is too far someplace else. I'm dignified now. I'm all dressed up. I got it all together. I don't care how much money we make. I don't care what your, what your job is. I don't care how prestigious you think you are. None of us are above worshiping the God of heaven.
Jesus drew near to the proclamation of Peter's confession. I love it when Erica shouts across the house, babe! And I'm like, yes! <laughs> what happened? Her proclamation engaged my proximity. Right? I wish it worked that well for kids. <laughs> Selective listeners, those ones. Jesus drew near to the proclamation. I love how Jesus engages with Peter upon his confession of faith. Listen to this quote. Worship is first and foremost for his benefit, not ours. Come on. Come on. Though it's marvelous to discover that in giving him pleasure, we ourselves enter into what can become our richest and most wholesome experience in life. That's why it doesn't matter what you feel like in worship. I don't feel, I just don't, I'm not in the mood to worship today. So what? Can we just talk real in church today? I just, I really don't feel like it. Doesn't matter. Why? Because worship's not about you. Worship's about what we give to God. At the end of the day, it's for his pleasure. It's for his adoration. It's, it's for him. Like, and that's the most beautiful worship when you don't feel like it. That's what's happened in our feelings-oriented culture. Well, I don't know how I feel about this scripture. We're going to talk about that in the new series in August. I don't know how I feel about that. doesn't matter. He didn't ask our permission to say what he said. He just, he said. Oh, come on, somebody. He said. And so he said, I'm going to create you to worship me. And if you don't, the rocks will cry out. Some of you are like, I kind of want to see that. So how long do we got to be quiet? <laughs> What's he saying? That creation has been designed to cry out to him. The people that set the time aside for proclamation are always met with his presence. We must develop patterns, times, rhythms to be in God's presence. Many of us wonder why we don't experience his presence, and I would submit to you simply that you haven't made time for it. I love to golf. Any golfers in the house today? What, big, no, just come on, be proud of it. How many golfers in the house today? Okay, good, good, good. You're my people. Um, golfers, you'll, you'll know this. People married to golfers, you'll definitely know this. Um... If somebody were to call me and say, hey, we're golfing tomorrow at 6 a.m., I could stay up till 2 a.m. and still get up three hours later to get to the golf course and play that round. Eyes bloodshot. I can't even see straight. I got no sleep. But for a golfer, you'll make time for it, right? But it's amazing. You do the same thing and you got to get up to go to work the next day. That would never happen. <laughs> You're calling in. You're like, ugh, I'm sick. <laughs> Isn't it amazing what we'll make time for? Yep. You will move mountains, yep. right? You will, clean, you, you will clean the house the way that you need to. You will get all your chores done. That's why I have chores, okay? You will do all the things that you need to do in order to do the thing that you want to do. Yep. Yep. 
but we'll say, I don't have the time for Jesus. You have it. Who do you say that I am? I'll make the time to be around here. She told me I was hovering the other day. And it's okay. Like, she knows that I can, I, we have permission to say these things. She's like, you're hovering right now. I'm just like, I just want to be around you. And she's like, but I don't. <laughs> but here's the thing. God does not mind if you hover. Doesn't mind if you're like, man, I just want to be in your presence, God. I look forward to worshiping with you here. I look forward to digging into my word, just me and God. I look forward to being in my car and bumping the music and just being with him. I look forward to the quiet moments where I'm just sitting outside reflecting upon who God is. And where there's a, where there's a proclamation, his proximity is there. Prayer, worship, Bible reading, and doing this out loud. You want to change your Bible reading? Read it out loud. I do it in my office. I'll read it out loud. I, I, I talk in the shower. It's the best place. My son's starting to do it. He talks to himself as well. But what I'm, I'm not just saying random things. I'm not complaining about stuff. Sometimes I'm complaining. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm talking to God. I'm, I'm using, and there's something that changes when I, when I use my mouth to proclaim who he is. Yeah. God, you've been so faithful in this moment. I'll just walk into the bathroom. God, you've been so faithful in this moment. Walk into the kitchen. God, you are so good in this moment. God, I thank you for my family right now. God, I thank you for my church. I thank you for, I thank you for, I thank you for. What am I doing? I'm, I'm giving him proclamation. And guess what? Oh, he shows up in my kitchen and we got a little worship service going on. He shows up in the shower. I know that's weird, but we got a worship service going on. Come on, everybody shout Proclamation. Number two, here's the second thing. Oh, I got to move. My goodness. Number two. Every shout number two. number two. I love this one. Deliverance is found in delighting. Deliverance is found in delighting. Delighting is a form of declaration. It's not necessarily verbal, but to delight, especially in God, is to declare something, him or someone, as central to your life and my life. Psalm 34 Verse four, I sought the Lord and he answered me and rescued me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. You who are his holy ones, fear the Lord for those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry, but those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. But to delight is a word that seems to have been lost in our sacred vocabulary. When was the last time you said that word? What are you doing today, Pastor Hallie? Delighting. We don't say it. How's your day going? Delightful. When was the last time you delighted in anything? Let alone God. See, delight is a patience word. Come on, stay, stay with me. Delight is a sustained word. 
It carries with it the idea of prolonged tension and examination. Sure, we like things. We've tasted good food and had great experiences, but to delight is a whole other way of seeing things and experiencing God. John Calvin wrote this, true delight in God and in the highest is the highest form of worship. When our hearts are captivated by his glory, our whole being rejoices in his presence. So Calvin would express that delight is an elevated form of worship because our whole being is involved in the delighting process. You see, write this down. Delight requires the rejection of instant gratification. But we want it fast, now, quick hit, boom, bam, bam. And if we're honest, much of our modern worship and church services are built around instant gratification rather than slow, intricate, involved rhythms of intimacy that produce moments of delight. Can I just, can I just be real for just a second, like I haven't been? Our team, I've got a clock right down here. There's a clock telling me, okay? Tick, tick, tick. Go faster, Jason. Go faster. You're not going to get to your third point. This is what it's telling me right now. I want to throw something at the clock. Because there's this angst inside of me that says, in all of the hours that we spend doing everything else in the world that we do, we can't linger for more than an hour and 15 minutes in a church service. Some of us still look at our watches during worship. Man, we've been singing for a long time. Y'all know how eternity? That's a long time to be worshiping. I just, I just wonder because we're fast, quick, instead of lingering in intimacy. This is a problem in marriages right now. Intimacy is a slow cooked meal. The other night, we went out to dinner with Pastor Howie and his amazing wife, Beth. And uh, when we got to the restaurant, Erica and I got there first. And they said, we have another table. It was like 5.30. They were running a little bit behind because of traffic. They said, we have another table coming in at 7 o'clock. So you guys, she didn't say hustle, but she said hustle. <laughs> we need to get you, like, they're going to get your table. And I'm not going to lie, I like kind of debated her a little bit. I was like, well, what if we're not done eating? Um, we kind of booked this table. And I wasn't trying to be a stinker, but the whole goal of the dinner was to be with Beth and Howie. The whole goal of the dinner was to linger, was to savor good food. And you know, you know what I'm talking about? Like the, the moments where you say, you're like, mm, oh, mm, oh, it's so good. You took the tiniest little bite. Oh, you should try this. And then you start like, you break all protocol and you're like, I'm giving a fork to Howie and it's not. <laughs> we wanted to go beyond the surface of things to gain a more profound knowledge of each other. We wanted to enjoy good food that we didn't have to inhale for the sake of keeping pace with the agendas of others that we didn't even know. Write this down. Pace intrudes upon the sacred order of delight. 
Delight is a relational disposition. I'm convinced much of what is missing in our relationships, the reason that marriages, dating, friendships, sibling relationships are in the current condition they are is because of a deficiency in our ability to delight. So then when it comes to delighting God, it becomes even more complex and therefore a practice that we dismiss and reject as a whole. See, the problem is that instead of delighting in the Lord who satisfies our deepest longings, we manufacture instant hits of gratification that erode our ability to delight in Him. Like an addict experiencing the law of diminishing returns, we are left searching around every corner for the next thing to mimic satisfaction but never actually providing it. See, when we truly delight in the Lord, I'm going to invite the team up. We find and experience not just satisfaction, but deliverance. I believe that it is in delight that we find deliverance for many of the lifestyle and culture-induced issues that we face today. It's in delight that we find deliverance from fear and stress and worry and anxiety, the pressure to perform, the pressure of the unknown, the desire to control, anger, apathy, attitudes, discontentment, materialism, ego, pride, and many of the other issues that we face. Write this down today because we need to grab a hold of this. We are designed to delight. But this is the original sin, or delight, excuse me, is the original intent of Eden. To delight in the Lord, his presence, and his creation. But then sin entered in. And sin entered the garden by replacing delight in the Lord with desire for self. This is the sin that still plagues the garden of our hearts from which we need deliverance today. I mean, look at where we're at in culture right now. We live in a time when the self has been elevated to the highest place of worship and delight. Come on, are y'all with me this morning? Our culture has been permeated with self-adornment, self-worship, self-care, self-love, to the exclusion of anything and anyone else. We've come to the same place as they did in the garden and the fruit because it's pleasing to the eyes and seems good for food. It was good for the self. See, to delight in the Lord is to participate in the sacred resistance of self-adoration and worship. And it causes us to meet with God in our proper place as his creation designed to worship him. C.S. Lewis said this, the most valuable thing the Psalms do for me is to express the same delight in God which made David dance. Let me say it like this. I just want to give us some like punchy statements so you can grab a hold of them this summer. What you delight in, you will want more of. What you delight in, you will want more of. Number three, last one. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because it leads to the same place. Jesus. Here's the third one. Worth is ascribed in worship. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 through 29 says this, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So much of our worship today tends to describe God, but not ascribe to God. 
was in the parking lot the other day, not the church parking lot, another parking lot. And there was a really, really, really expensive car there. And so I was curious. So I looked around, make sure whoever owned it wasn't watching. And then I strolled up to the car. And I was concerned because I've seen movies where like if you get within five feet, alarm systems go off and everything like that. So okay, I'm in the parking lot and I'm approaching the car looking around. Hopefully no one sees it. And it's really expensive. So I didn't go too close to it because I knew what it was worth. And how many of you know that when something has high worth, we treat it and approach it differently? Who do you say that I am? This summer church, I pray that this would be a summer of presence, proximity. Could you dedicate this summer to delighting in God? And in so doing, you find deliverance. Could you decide that this summer is a summer that I'm going to ascribe worth what God is worth to me based upon this simple fact right here. He should be worth everything because he gave his life for you. I pray that for this summer around here at the well. In Jesus' mighty name, come on in the church, shout him. Amen. I'm asking you to bow your head, close your eyes in this moment. Jesus. We thank you for your presence in this room right now, in this place in our lives. You know, I don't know brought some of you in here today. There's lots of us in here today who are doing this journey of faith. We're pursuing Jesus. But maybe there's some of us in here today that have yet to say yes to him. And if that's you, I just want to give you the opportunity to say yes to him. I want to give you the opportunity to put your faith in him, to declare yourself as a follower of Jesus. And so today with our words, as loud as we possibly can, I want to lead us in that. We're going to all say this prayer together so we don't leave anybody out. But if that's you today, you're saying, man, I need to say yes. I need to proclaim my yes to Jesus. Make this your prayer today. Come on, as loud as we can, repeat this after me. Everybody say, Jesus, I'm giving you everything. I'm giving you my past. I'm giving you my right now. I'm putting my future in your hands. Save me, change me, and make me new. And I declare in this moment that I'm going to follow you all the days of my life. Today, I am saying yes to you. I wanna follow you. Jesus, you are my savior. In Jesus' mighty name.